Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. The Christian faith is not only about belief and practices. It's also about the kind of people that we become. Yet some of the biggest barriers to our transformation come from our toxic self-narratives. These narratives shape the way we see ourselves and the way we interact in the world. God designed us with a deep longing in our souls to be wanted, loved, alive, and connected to Him. Healing our souls requires more than knowing what God thinks about us. Our healing comes not through reason alone, but through revelation. This short paragraph was an excerpt from James Brian Smith's brand new book, The Good and Beautiful You. Jim's a good friend of Restoring the Soul and is Michael's guest today on the podcast. If you don't know him, Dr. James Brian Smith is the Dallas Willard Professor of Christian Spiritual Formation at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas. He's also the executive director of the Apprentice Institute for Christian Spiritual Formation and the best-selling author of 12 books, most notably the Apprentice series, which includes The Good and Beautiful God. Finally, among other things, James is the host of the Things Above podcast. Now, we've provided links in the show notes to everything I've just mentioned, and we're so glad to have Jim back with us today. So now, without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Well, Jim Smith, James Brian Smith, friend, colleague, and guru of spiritual formation, (laughs) (laughs) welcome back to, uh, I've lost count of how many times you've been on the program, but I'm thrilled that we can be here today to talk about your newest book, The Good and Beautiful You, Discovering the Person Jesus Created You to be. Yes. Well, yes, thank you. It's wonderful to be with you, Michael, always in any setting, no matter what it is. Any MJC time, as I call it, is is a blessing to me. So, But I, I want to start this interview by asking you a question. What's it like to have a book uh, that is dedicated to you, that you are on the dedication page? That's not happened to me ever. So, I mean, is that weird? Is it cool? I don't know. It's humbling, actually. And when you told me that that was going to happen, 
I actually thought you were kidding for a minute, and, but 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 I don't think you'd be that that cruel, like to say, "Hey, you're invited to my birthday party." Just kidding. Uh, I'm really humbled because you also dedicated it to Dallas Willard and Richard Foster, and to be in any way included on the same page. But I'm grateful. Um, I'm grateful because you included in the book some of the story for why you dedicated it to me and how it actually helped lead to the topic of coming to mm-hmm. think about the importance of how God sees us. So yeah. all, all the more honored that that this conversation is happening around this book. And I thank you for dedicating the book to me. It was very, very special. Mm-hmm. And no, that's not, not happened to me before, and I don't think that it ever will happen again. <laughs> Well, you never know, but <clears throat> no, it's uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you you played such a crucial role in my journey, and and I've said to people, I couldn't have written this book if it weren't for the friendship that we've developed and my time with you. Um, that was a part of the the journey. You know, I think a lot, Michael, about kingdom synchronicity and how God takes us into situations, and I was at a place where. I needed to talk with someone about the condition of my soul. It was such an interesting journey of finding you. And I'll never forget that first conversation we had over the phone. And from that moment on, it became uh, such a gift to for me to come to Restoring the Soul, to have a week with you. That was a breakthrough in my life to see what my soul was really all about. And so that's the through line of this whole book is the soul that our soul has incredible needs, 10 fundamental needs it can't avoid. And Jesus is the answer to all those needs. But I needed that time with you in order to write this book. So I had to dedicate it to you. It was just, you know, obvious. Well, again, uh, thank you. And it's, it's very humbling. So I have a question. You are Mm. James Brian Smith and you've written a whole bunch of books. I know close to, if not over a dozen books, maybe more than that. Um, And they are, they are substantial books. They have substance to them. And many people listening might think, well, first of all, how could he need to address the condition of his soul? But I'm also curious what you meant by the condition of your soul, because uh, I think it was John Ortberg who wrote in his book, Soul Keeping, that when Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, that Jesus is not talking about the destination of our soul, like where we're going to go after we die, but more the condition of our mm-hmm. soul. So that probably is a great question to start with. And then I want to specifically talk about the book without going into too much detail, because that was obviously a private time. What was the condition of your soul that you needed to call me up and say, I want to come and spend a week together? Well, oddly, it was success. That is a very strange thing to say because normally we think that failure and loss um, struggle are the things that lead us to seek help. And that is often the case. But in my case, it was that things had gone really, really well. And one of the problems of success is that you take your eyes off what's really important. And so I spent a number of years, I would say, not keeping my eyes on that which is most important, which is the care of our soul. And I had done that throughout my journey, but there came a point where I was more focused on trying to do God's work and to make a ministry succeed. 
and um you know my my mind just shifted away from those things that were so fundamental and i found myself in a place where i had lost my joy and my wife was as as often is the case it's uh, those who are closest to us see it even better than we can and she was saying wow you've you've really lost your smile you've lost your sense of joy for the things that you're doing and that's what it was it was and i know we have a mutual friend william paul young um author of the shack and he he helped me understand that because he said success actually is much more difficult for for the soul than than failure because when we struggle we tend to turn to god when we succeed we tend to turn away and think well i've got this you know all by myself and so that was that was what it was for me i had to get back to the basics it's interesting that you talked about the absence of joy jim because most of us think about the condition our soul, like if something bad happens, if we do something bad, but it was more the absence of joy. And I just think that's a tremendous indicator for the condition of our soul. You know, if we were to ask the question, how is it with your soul, as the early Methodists used to do uh, in a greeting, that where's your joy? How much joy mm -hmm. do you have? Because joy is really the fruit of the inner life, isn't it? Joy, peace. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. All of those things that are, that are so fundamental to soul wellness and they were missing for me. And yet outwardly you say, well, man, think, things are going really well for Jim. I mean, the ministry is growing rapidly, all, everything you could want and say that was it. And I think that's what Jesus was saying in the verse you quoted, uh, because, you know, he tells the story of the, the rich man who built more and more barns. Like I have to build more barns to take hold all of my stuff. And then he dies. <laughs> and then it's like, you know, what, what profit is it if you gain all this stuff? But you lose your soul because the most important thing about a person is our soul. It is the, the center of who we are. And um, and Jesus knew it. And, and he knew that we're so prone to think that success in the in the world's terms is what really matters. But how many how many people do we have to see who get that and fail? You know, I've, I've just I've been listening to Matthew Perry's uh, memoir about his addiction and his I mean, this guy was making a million dollars an episode on friends and his life was, his inner life was dead and he had profound encounters with God. And I mean, you just story after story and you think, wow, uh, what's it going to take for us to learn the lesson that, that these kinds of successes don't matter. Will you talk a little bit and I, I, I'd be remiss to uh, not have you do this and quote, just talk about your book in terms of the, the content, but it's all framed around this. When you're referring to the soul, what do you mean by soul, the most important part of who we are? Yeah, well, the soul is is that which animates and integrates our life. Uh, it's it's the thing that runs the whole system. Everything comes together, and so the soul is right at the center. It's a, its essence is is spiritual, so it's not something I can slice into a person and find like, oh, there's your soul right by your spleen. There it is. It's it's non physical. It's spiritual. But it's that dimension of the human person that organizes everything, integrates everything, and brings all of us together. Uh, it's, it connects my body to my mind, to my feelings, my emotions, my experiences, my memories. Everything is attached. And so the soul is, is this fundamental thing that is the most crucial thing about us. And yet it's the thing we most easily neglect. Yes. Except when you listen to music, if you, there's music, the word souls all in our music. It's, it's in our language. You talk about soul mates and soul music and soul food. It's everywhere, but people don't really know what it is. 
How do you define it, Michael? I mean, restoring the soul. I mean, you are the man. Yeah, I would, I would agree with everything you said and um, John Ortberg's uh, talk that he gave at the most recent apprentice gathering in September mm. was all about the soul. And he talked about that, the message of Mark seven, I think it is where Jesus has the passage and, and other gospels about what will it profit if you lose your soul? Um, mm-hmm. I, I try to define it simply in a little bit of a blurb, and that is uh, the Hebrew aspect of mind, body, emotions, and our will integrated with our spirit, and that it is spirit. But I think the most helpful thing yeah. that I've learned about it is that the Hebrew idea of soul, as opposed to Greek, includes the body, that we are embodied yes. souls, and therefore the importance to tend to our body. So with that as the foundation, you wrote The Good and Beautiful You as the fourth, and I think you said final book, but we'll wait to see, in your series, The Good and Beautiful series. And the first one started out with The Good and Beautiful God. Talk about why you started writing The Good and Beautiful God, because there was a reason behind that. I was trying to write a curriculum for Christ-likeness based on Dallas Willard's uh, ninth chapter of The Divine Conspiracy, where Dallas says, if you're going to create a curriculum for Christ-likeness, like some method or plan to move people into Christ-likeness, here's what you do. But Dallas never wrote that curriculum himself. He, he, and I asked him, so when are you going to write the curriculum you outlined in chapter nine? He said, I'm a philosopher. I don't write those kinds of things. <laughs> he said, but you do, Jim, and I, which is true. I did. I, I've written those things for Renovare and other resources. So I set out to try to write a curriculum for Christ-likeness and I failed. It failed several times. And the reason was, Michael, I, I was focusing on the practice of the disciplines. The disciplines, the spiritual disciplines had been so important in my journey. I thought, well, if you just get people to pray and worship and fast and study and meditate, they'll just get better or more Christ-like. And it didn't happen. And I was field testing it with actual people over the course of a year. And as I listened to them talk, I discovered something really crucial. And that is people had really bad God narratives. Their narratives were toxic, really, that God was this angry judge who wanted to punish them for their smallest infraction, or God was some distant deity that didn't really care or wasn't near us. And so I started to hear that and I thought, wow, the the God that Jesus reveals to us is not something that most Christians really know. So that's when I went back a second time writing the curriculum and included the good and beautiful God. And Boy, was it the missing piece because the good and beautiful God has been a a huge seller and churches have used it for now over 13 years. And I think that the reason is, is because it's helping people repair something fundamental, which is what do you think about God? Because as Tozier said, it's the most important thing about a person is what we think about or what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about a person. And I think we assume that if people get enough Bible knowledge and if they hear <laughs> enough, quote, accurate sermons, that they'll have that view of God that Jesus had. And yet our, our toxic images of God have a lot to do with our story and the narrative that we were given and how our life narrative and family of origin narrative bumps up against our narrative of God. Um, what was the subtitle of The Good and Beautiful God? Because I, I remember it was something like loving the God that Jesus loves or knowing the God that Jesus loves. Falling in love with the God Jesus reveals, Jesus knows, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and yeah. that's the question, isn't it? What's the God that Jesus reveals? If Jesus is right. fully God 
and fully man, what does he tell us about what God is essentially like? And there's not, well, Jesus plus all these other attributes, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I say to my students all the time, there's only one answer to the question, what is God like? Jesus. In John 14, 9, when Philip says, when are you going to show us the Father? And Jesus says, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. That's a huge thing to say. If you've seen me, you've seen God, he's saying. And we learn in Hebrews that he's the exact representation of the Father. In Colossians, that he's the the icon or image of the invisible God. So, yeah, learning about who God is through the person of Jesus, as you said, second member of the Trinity, is fundamental. And as people begin, I mean, it's interesting, Michael, very few people have a problem with Jesus. They find him fascinating. They find him compassionate and loving and powerful and all these great things. But then God the Father, not so much so. I often say we have a, a Trinity deficit disorder where we don't really put the Trinity, like they're together, they're one, they're completely united. What you say of Jesus is true of the Father. What's true of the Father is true of Jesus and and the Spirit as well. So, yeah, it's 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 hugely important how we think about God. Narratives, as you know, as a therapist, I mean, what we what's going on in our mind is fundamental. Yes. So through your own journey, both professionally, theologically, but also personally, as you talked about at the beginning of our conversation today, that's when you realized that there was something else uh, that was pretty big that was standing in the way of uh, people breaking through their toxic images of God. Yeah. Well, so a friend of mine, Joe Davis, had said to me, uh, gosh, this was like almost 10 years ago, maybe not quite, but Joe said to me that I was missing a book in the series. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, the good and beautiful you. you know, and I said, why? He said, because people have really toxic self-narratives. And he said, you, good and beautiful God helps with those toxic God narratives, but our self-narratives, he said, I see this in ministry all the time. And that's what you need to do. I knew in my gut that, that he was right, but I wasn't in a place to write it. And a part of the reason was, is that my own self-narratives were pretty toxic. Mm. And so when I hit that place of where the joy was gone, and I was like, why, why am I not just so elated? Everything is going great in my life. But when I hit that space, the, the narrative that I had inside, Michael, was I'm a fraud. I'm a fake. This isn't real uh, because I'm this slimy, awful sinner. And uh, so my self-narratives were so bad. So there I am with you and we're face to face and I share my deepest, darkest secrets, confess I get soul naked with you and there I am. And then your response after that is, wow, I'm so impressed. You're such a person of integrity. You use that word. Mm. And I thought, is Michael here? Like, did he, has he been listening? Like, what? I just shared the, the brokenness, the things that I'm most ashamed of. And your response was, wow, I'm, I really am impressed with your integrity. And what that did for me it was an epiphany was you began to explain, look at, look at your soul. Your soul longs for wellness. That's why you're here. You're not here to impress me or, I mean, you're here because you're desperate really. And that's because your soul is crying out and your soul has these incredible longings that are so good. And here you are sharing that. And that was just so, I, I mean, I could never have seen that coming, that that was going to be your response. But a huge light went on for me, and I thought, wait a minute, this is a new narrative for me. Wait, maybe 
instead of my narrative, the story I'm living being Jim's a fraud, he's a sham, he's not all he ought to be. When you said, look at your integrity, I just went, well, yeah, I guess so. I'm here. Like I want beauty, goodness, and truth in every aspect of my life. That's why I'm here. And yeah. that's that was like your soul, Jim, your soul. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that beauty, goodness, and truth, it's not untrue to say that you were doing that because you wanted more of God and more of his experience in your life. You know, one of the things I've learned from Jesus, from being with him and hearing his voice in scripture and in my inmost being is how Jesus always looks below the surface, that we all know the passage in um, Samuel where it says that God looks at the inside and man looks at the outside, but he always looks below the surface down to that level of motive and causation. And I think he does see the goodness that's there and you, you unpack some of that, but that, you know, this idea of seeking righteousness, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I've come to define righteousness as the way that things ought to be, as opposed to a whole bunch of good deeds that I'm doing or the absence of a bunch of bad deeds. And I think that's how a lot of people think about righteousness. And we talk about self-righteousness. And self-righteousness would be that on my own, I've made things the way that they ought to be. But your longing in that confession is, I just long for things to be the way that they're meant to be. And my soul can't be at rest until they are, unless we somehow medicate it, numb it, continue to go after more success, which then becomes compulsion. And that was what, that was such a sacred time for me to have, to bear my soul, literally, to you and to have you listen and then help me uh, re-narrate the story of my life. Because there were, there were parts of my life that you were able to see in a light that I didn't. So events and things that had happened to me, I narrated a certain story based on that. So, right. um, and you may remember the, one of the key things and I write about this in the book is, um, my father was like a lot of dads in his generation. He was really tough. Like he, he was, he was quick to criticize and rare to give praise. And so I was, I, I had this narrative that I, only got his love when I, when I was perfect and good and did everything well. And because I was a good athlete, I succeeded a lot in sports. And I tell the story in the, in the book about how one weekend after I'd scored 51 points, 25 points on a Friday night, 26 on a Saturday night, uh, playing basketball there in Colorado and came in so proud, thought my dad was going to give me a big hug. And instead he was critical and he, he, all he wanted to talk about was why I missed some free throws. And I, couldn't believe it. I thought, like, how am I going to get this guy's affirmation? And what he said to me was, well, your, your feet were wrong. Like you, you, your, your feet weren't positioned right. That's why you missed those free throws. But he didn't say anything positive. But anyway, I left and I, but I narrated a story from that. Like even when I'm the best, I can't get this guy's affirmation. But you said something profound. You said, it's amazing. Your dad was watching your feet. And I said, to you, I was like, what are you, what are you getting at, Michael? I don't get it. You said, think about that. He was, he was trying to help you. He was, he, he was wanting you to do well and he was watching your feet. I mean, that's, and I thought, wow, you're right. He was loving me in a way that I couldn't see. I wanted, 
praise, affirmation. And I remember when you said to me, he should have, when you walked in after that night, he should have given you a big hug, told you he was proud of you, said he loved you. And then maybe later (laughs) said, Hey, maybe we can work on free throws or something. (laughs) But he led with that. And so I narrated a story. But when you told me your perception of it, I was able to re-narrate a story Mm. and then connect it with something later, which was toward the end of my dad's life, I actually had a a heart to heart with him. And I said, why were you so hard on me? And he said, that was my way of loving you. That's how I, I thought you could be really special. And I wanted to help. That's the only way I knew how to help you. So his, his way of loving, boy, I missed it. So, but you helped me connect that. Yeah. And I'm, first of all, two things, Jim, thank you for sharing this and talking about this now on this podcast in December of 2022. But thank you for writing this in the book. You didn't have to include any of your journey. I would say that most Christian books don't include a lot of self-disclosure. And now that self-disclosure has become a kind of currency, publishers will say, well, be a little more self-disclosing, right? And, <laughs> and in, yeah. in our business, so to speak, we can have canned self-disclosure that's appropriate. But you're very, very vulnerable in the book. And let me ask the question, why? Um, I think think a lot of it was in my time with you, Michael. I I began to not be afraid of that and to recognize that 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 was the – the scary thing under the bed or whatever. And I, I don't address it. Don't think of it. No, it's not. It's not. I'm not, I'm not afraid of that anymore. And I, I think that also in my experience, when people are vulnerable and uh, transparent, it invites other people to be that way. And I've experienced that from readers already who've been reading the book and they'll say, Hey man, thanks for sharing that. Like, like that's, that's really encouraged me. Um, if if you felt that and had to seek some help and needed needed some uh, support, then maybe I I can reach out too. And so that's a side benefit of it. it's not why I did it. I was I was trying to just tell the truth of the story. Yeah, and even back to the fact that you called what you did in Colorado during your intensive confession. I love to think about what you did in the book. What I do in my writing and speaking, which is self disclosure as confession, but there again, so much of your writing is about reframing for people. Here's what we have believed about God, and let's reframe what we believe about God so that the toxic images can be healed. Here's what we have believed about ourselves, and you illustrate that in your own life, and let's reframe that to look at what Jesus says. But I like to think about confession not as I'm putting all my bad stuff out there so that God can somehow be satisfied that I've sufficiently felt shame but I'm opening myself up so that I can be known. And to be known is to be loved. And to be loved on the horizontal level is to create a greater capacity for being loved on that vertical level with God. Uh, because as Kurt Thompson says, God deals with the same neural networks that our loved ones deal with, our anxieties, mm-hmm. our stress, where we carry that in our body, our reactions, or irritability, those kinds of things. And so there really is an aspect where uh, how we do that on the human level affects us on the vertical level. Let me come back to what you said about people thanking you for being self-disclosing. 
What has the overall response been? Because there are some Christian circles where, number one, we don't talk about us. And number two, our understanding of us is far from good and beautiful. Yeah, it's it has been interesting to see that because the, the, some of those narratives are so deeply entrenched. The ones that are, I mean, the sort of I'm a terrible, horrible, awful, slimy, sinful piece of garbage. Um, that's deeply entrenched in a lot of people's minds. And so I think the book has has um, shocked a lot of people who have never encountered the narrative that says you are a divinely designed, lavishly loved, fully forgiven sacred child of God with a sacred story. I mean, that's a message that isn't heard that much. And so that's the reaction I'm getting. Um, <clears throat> my own church, Chapel Hill United Methodist Church, did um, the, we did a, a full study of the book churchwide and had a, a couple hundred people go through the book in small groups. And we just finished it. So it's interesting to get feedback from some of the the people who lead the groups. And I was just visiting yesterday with, with a, a guy who – whose group really dug into the book and got a lot out of it. And he shared that uh, there was hardly a, a session when someone didn't break down crying, just saying, man, this, this hit me at a very deep level. So it's, it's been wonderful to see that. It's um, so beautiful to me. I know we're using that word a lot because that word is in all four of the books in your series, the good and beautiful series, but how, when we encounter truth, how, it doesn't lead to condemnation. It leads to freedom when it's real mm -hmm. truth. And there's something just incredibly liberating about the concept as well as the whole book. The second chapter in the book is all about the body and you called it, you have a sacred body. What was it like to write that chapter? Because, you know, when we talk about spirituality, which is what you've worked in the field of spirituality in the soul for four decades plus, we don't think of the body right away. We almost think of it as the antithesis of spirituality. But you had to include that early on in the book. Exactly. And a, a part of that was, was again, working with you, Michael, and <clears throat> and uh, reading uh, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, and just recognizing that, uh, as you said, the Hebrew understanding of the soul includes the body. And Dallas Willard always talked about that. He talked about the centrality of the body. But I had some of those Gnostic narratives that were like, well, the body's bad. The spirit's good. The body's that place that gets us in trouble all the time. And doggone it, we've got this body we've got to put up with. But to see it as sacred was fundamental. Actually, in the first version of the book, it was chapter eight. And uh, I had a couple, I had a Bible scholar and two theologians who I really trust read read the first manuscript, and they came all three of them in one voice separately, but in the same with the same set. They said, "Please move that chapter up." And I said, "Tell me why." And they said, "Because most Christians don't include the body at all, and and you've got to start out to say we are embodied souls or ensouled bodies. They're not separate. So you to make that clear at the very beginning uh, is is huge." And so uh, that's why I moved it up, because it, it does need to be brought out right away that your body is sacred. And we fundamentally know this. If some way someone's harmed our bodies, violated us verbally or physically, we know that because our bodies are these incredible sacred things. Um, but when someone does that to us, it hurts the soul. It breaks the soul. 
I remember Dallas would talk about when, when, you know, that physical assault on our bodies actually is, is a, it breaks our souls. So seeing them as, as same, you know, that we're the one and the same, our bodies and souls was huge. Comment on what you just said about an embodied soul and an ensouled body. I don't think I've heard you use that contrast before. Yeah, I, well, I say that in the book. In fact, when I went back through the next time, every time I talk about the body, uh, I talk about the ensouled body or the embodied soul so that we keep them together so that we don't talk about there's a soul and a body because they are united. They're, they are one. They work together. And so uh, that became really important to me in the the next version of the book as I was rewriting it to to make sure that I, I wanted readers to know you can't separate these two because that was a narrative I had. I had separated them. Like my soul was this thing I needed to care for, but my body, well, that's another thing. No, your our bodies are are absolutely indispensable and they work together. You see it all the time, I'm sure, in therapy that what happens what's happening in our soul and our body, they're they're the same. Yes. And I mean, with COVID and with any kind of mm. sickness, if you're not feeling well physically, it's really hard to feel joy and love and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness. And it truly in that regard, how our body is doing can affect uh, everything about us emotionally and spiritually. Absolutely. Not getting enough sleep. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a huge one. I mean, in Good Meetful God, the first soul training exercise is sleep. And I learned that again when I was field testing the books with people and, and I discovered, wow, people don't sleep enough. And then I studied it and we have this problem. It's an epidemic. And uh, boy, you, you know, Dallas would often say you can't do anything in your spiritual life apart from your body. And if you're exhausted, you can't do it. You can't love, you can't pray, you can't serve. It's all connected. Jim, well, you went deep into the theologian Adrian von Kamm, uh, a Dutch Catholic theologian. And there you discovered a whole uh, body of, of, of theology and literature about this undergirding of the good and beautiful you. Will you talk a little bit about Father von Kamm's influence and, and what some of his big ideas are? Yeah, that was sort of an accidental thing. I, I, I came upon a book of his called On Being Yourself, which is not a very exciting title. <laughs> I mean, just On Being Yourself. <laughs> and actually, the title made me think it was going to be some sort of a classic self-help, just, you know, be more who you are. Uh, but on, on, I think like the second page of the book, he says, uh, the truest, most unique person of who you are is who you are in Christ. And that hooked me right away. I went, who is this guy? So I began studying him. What a fascinating life. Um, he was Catholic priest and he lived through the, the Dutch hunger famine in World War II, where the Nazis had, had cut off, uh, all supplies of food and they were just, they were starving them to death. And he was a priest and he began to formulate his understanding of the human person during this hunger famine as he watched how people coped with extreme loss and deprivation. And he began to see the nature of the soul and the, and the body. So I started studying him and I, I saw these parallels with, with Dr. Dallas Willard's work. And I thought, wow, I wish these two cats had met in, in life. And they're, they're, they were born and died similarly in terms of the time, their time frames, but they never met. Uh, but 
he just opened up a whole new understanding. Uh, he talked about spiritual formation as a science, uh, as a body of knowledge to understand how it works. And so as I began to look at his way of defining terms, it opened up a whole new understanding of the nature uh, of the human person and how he put all of this stuff together with the soul and the body and the mind and the will and just fascinating. What's uh, what's one of the books that you would commend people to read? I've, I've yeah. gone on Amazon and there are like anthologies of his work. So it's a little difficult to just access that. Is there a title that you can think of? Uh, he wrote a lot of really small little books that are accessible. Um, the Power of, Appreci- of Appreciation is one that's a really nice, easy book to read. Um, so The Power of Appreciation on Being Yourself, if you can find it, is tremendous. And and it's also an easier volume. I mean, he wrote these seven-volume huge academic kinds of series. He wrote two of those and they're pretty hard. And Susan Muto and Rebecca Letterman wrote a book called Understanding Our Story, where they help you understand Von Kamm, uh, which was a huge resource to me. And also my uh, correspondence with both of them helped me understand Von Kamm because he's not easy. Like Willard, he's kind of difficult to read. But once you get something, it's like, oh, wow, that's that's big. Yeah. I, I uh, have not gone deep into Von Kahn, but discovered uh, his writings through you. And I think it's cool how there's the very intellectual, larger theological series. And then there's these small kind of spinoff pastoral works that he did not neglect. They're very, very right. practical. So in, yeah. in the book, Good and Beautiful You, you start out talking about you have a soul. We talked about sacred body. And then um, not that I'm operating from the table of contents, but in the table of contents, there's this progression like a reverse funnel where the focus is on our soul, our body, the goodness of those things. And then the funnel gets kind of wider into things like you are loved, you are made for God, you're forgiven, you've been made holy, which is the teaching of the new covenant. And then you move into calling and glorification. But with each of these, there's a theme And I wanted to see if in the remainder of our time, you could talk about in the chapter, you are desired, you lay down Lectio Divina as a way of more experientially moving into being desired. And then in you are loved, breath prayer. And so with both of those, there's an experiential element. And that's a big part of what the Apprentice Institute is about, that you're not afraid of, you don't deny uh, and you don't keep people from experience of God. So first, can you talk about the importance of experiencing God, where for many, that's anathema? Yeah. Well, um, so the, the the practice of Lectio Divina, which is divine reading of the Scripture, where you open the Scripture and you slowly read a passage. It's the opposite of what we normally do, speed reading, like devour something quick, take in the information. This is slow reading where you're asking the spirit, speak to me through this word. And what's so beautiful, Michael, about, about Lectio Divina is that you're, you're allowing the spirit to give you an, a word that is for you. And I love doing this with groups of people. If you do group Lectio Divina, so you may have like say 12 people in the room, you're all reading the same passage and you're, and you read it over three times slowly. And then you ask people, what was, what was a word or a phrase that stood out to you? And it's, it's always 
directed right at that person, even if it's the same word or phrase. Quite often it's not. It's someone will say this ver this part of the verse or this word stood out. But even if it's the same word or phrase, it had a different meaning. And I, it just shows the intimacy of God, that God knows us so personally that he would say, this is the word you need today. It might be a word of challenge. It might be a word of encouragement. might be a word of comfort. Whatever it is that we need, the Spirit knows that. And so experiencing God is profound. The, the, the passage I suggest in that chapter is on um, Psalm 139. Because that's the, this idea that I was knit together in my one mother's womb. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. And in that chapter, I talk about that you are desired by God, that God chose you before the foundation of the world. God knew you would exist and knit you together in your mother's womb. And um, I, I just, I have people in my life who have had kids who are adopted, um, who have had parents who didn't want them. And I mean, even though their biological parents might say later, Hey, I didn't want to have you. Like, it's just like, that's a pretty profound thing to have a parent say. And obviously adoption is that it's at some level either, right? Because you've got some biological people said, I'm not going to raise this child for whatever reason. And so there's a deep fundamental need of the soul to be desired. And Psalm 139 gets at that, that God knew you foreknew that you would exist before the foundation of the world, you would come one day in the body, in the time, in the place, in whatever that family was that raised you, God was always there. And that experience that can happen when we do Lectio Divina is, is huge. And then with breath prayer, that's where you're, you're taking a word or phrase, Abba, I belong to you. It's one of my favorite ones. And I just say that and I let that sink deep into my soul. This idea that I belong to this, this Abba Father that, who is love, who, and that's how Jesus addressed the Father was Abba. So those practices are, connect us experientially. So it's not just some information. It's actually a transformation that happens experientially. Thanks for unpacking both of those. The Psalm 139, hands down, uh, my favorite Psalm, and I have mm-hmm. other favorites, but, the thing about that psalm is, you know, the theology about how God cannot look upon sin, so we're separated from him, and yet Jesus was born into a sinful world and looked upon sinful people. And the uh, writing of Psalm 139 is before the cross and Jesus' death mm. for sin. And God knows David so deeply, so profoundly, so intimately and he's celebrating that knowing as opposed to, you know, David, I know you. I know before a word is on your tongue, I know it. So you better watch out. You better shape up. Mm-hmm. You better spend more time writing Psalms tomorrow to the point where where God, not David, but God says, I'm laying my hand upon you and it's absolutely too much for you to comprehend. It's too wonderful for you to attain. And it's like there's this mutual celebration of God saying, I know the joy that you have in being known, and I have joy in knowing you. And it's just remarkable. And it feels like Psalm 139 is could be called the good and beautiful psalm about mm. the good and beautiful God who loves the good and beautiful uh, us. Mm. Yes. Preach it. I love it. I love it. What are you hoping somebody gains by reading your book? That's easy for me to say, actually. Uh, I hope that people – it's two things, really. One is that that people would wake up 
and be able to look in the mirror and say, I am a divinely designed, lavishly loved, fully forgiven, sacred child of God. And uh, I am meant to to live with God in this life and into the next and to glorify God with everything that I do. And then the second would be that they would look at other people with those same eyes, that when you encounter someone from uh, a well-dressed person in a, you know, a three-piece suit to the person on the corner with a cardboard sign, that you would look at them and say, that person is a divinely designed, lavishly loved, fully forgiven, sacred child of grace. And to see the sacredness and, and beauty in each other, uh, first and foremost. So that's, I know that's a big ask, <laughs> you know, that people would, would be able to look in the mirror and say, that is who I am. Uh, I often say, you know, Michael, my, my favorite narratives to, that I always say every day, I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights and I live forever in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. And that's what the book is trying to say. Uh, but not only that I'm that way, but look at others and say, that is who they are. I love it. So from your chair, and you hold the Dallas Willard Chair of Spiritual Formation at Friends University in Wichita, Kansas, you interact with a lot of leaders and a lot of authors. You yourself are on staff at the church, as you mentioned, in Wichita. What do you see God's kingdom as about? What What do you see happening in the kingdom, in our world, and in America when there's so much negativity, so much conflict, there's war, there's political divisiveness. And yet, as you just said, we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. So what do you see happening? Oh, it, the, king, the kingdom's never in trouble. Um, that life is real and, and we can rely on it. It never disappoints us. You know, I started out today talking about kingdom synchronicity and learning to, to see, I mean, one of the practices that I do Pretty much daily. I don't want to lie in case I, you know, <laughs> it's not every single day, but most days I pra- I say to God, give me the eyes to see the kingdom at work today. And then I do an examine at the end of the day to say, where did I see it? And what a, I mean, that practice has been huge for me because um, I'll begin to see even the smallest things, some interactions. Like say, for example, I've, I know I'm going to be meeting with a person later in the day. I have this meeting and I might pray for whatever I need. Maybe it's courage that day or maybe um, it's a sense of compassion. Uh, maybe it's a, a prayer to say, keep me aligned with your will today, God, in this, in this interaction and meeting. And then I have those things. And then later I'll look back and see how God was doing something. And that's just I love to see because the kingdom is God's power. It's God's provision. It's God's protection. It's God's presence. I got a lot of peas in there, uh, but it's all of those things. And that's why Dallas wrote the divine conspiracy. It's closer to us than we know. And it's reliable and it's big and it's, it's happening. But human beings, what do we do? We turn away to the kingdom of Jim and the kingdom of Michael. And I got my own thing. And then I'm, your kingdom collides with mine. And then we fight and we're all that sort of thing. Churches compete with each other. There's so much. It's a mess. But the kingdom is never in trouble. So that's why I, every day I just say, thy kingdom come. That's that's the prayer. I want to align my life. I don't. My prayer doesn't make the kingdom come. So I, I'm not naive enough to think that I just made the kingdom come because I prayed thy kingdom. No, it's here. When I pray thy kingdom come, I'm saying, bring it into Jim. Bring it into every fiber of who I am and everything that I'm about today because it's the best thing going. 
Well, Jim, uh, my brother, my friend, my colleague, it's really delightful to talk with you. It's always good to talk with you, but thanks for, um, thank you for sharing your heart and sharing some of the, the understory and backstory behind the book. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. You again, thank you for all that you've done for me. Continue the friendship, the work we do together. Uh, you're a massive blessing in my life. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. Thank you.